0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando.
1: Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 3 through 12. And Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them for the, from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This is God's word. Please be seated.
0: Uh, good morning. Uh, My name is Ted Sin, and I'm one of the elders uh, here at New City. And uh, it's my responsibility and privilege to, again, teach uh, from God's Word this morning. Uh, As has been said, we are continuing on in this series on biblical reflections on marriage. And last week I told you what I would reiterate today, that it is not... Uh, my desire to create a comprehensive theology on marriage during this time, uh, nor to attempt to preach these series uh, on marriage during this time. I just wanna offer what I said last week was five, but what I'm gonna say this week is seven uh, reflections uh, on biblical marriage. Uh, It could be 20 by the time we're done, Uh, but again, we'll just keep going until uh, on Monday morning, God tells me uh, to pick another passage that's not related to marriage. Uh, About 12 years ago, I was preparing to officiate my uh, first wedding ceremony. Uh, no one sitting here that I know of. Uh, and, and in the, pre- in the preparation for, for officiating, isn't it interesting that we call that officiating? It just dawned on me, uh, like I should have a whistle or something. Um, but that's after the marriage. It's not before the marriage. Um, in the preparation, I made what I consider a significant mistake, albeit I'm coming to understand it's a common rookie mistake. Uh, I I agreed to let the bride and the groom write their own vows. Uh, This is not in and of itself a mistake. Uh, The mistake was that I didn't ask them to share with me those vows prior to the wedding day. Uh, I needed to make sure that they were actually prepared to say something and and to make sure that they were actually gonna promise something in what they said. Uh, To be blunt, uh, they were not prepared. Uh, To be blunt, they ended up making what you can graciously say is a mess of their vows. They were fumbling over their words. Uh, One rambled on for quite some time. One, under the pressure of the moment, said some silly and very embarrassing things. Uh, Worst of all, though, from my pastoral perspective, was that in the order of service where it said marriage vows, they didn't actually promise anything they rather poorly declared that they were in love in the present instead of clearly promising that they would be there to love in the future. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day. Since then, I would guess maybe 50 weddings. Early in the premarital training process, I clearly tell couples a variety of things. One of them is if you want to write your own vows, you can but you have to write them months in advance. And you have to give me the chance to, let's say, bless those vows before I stand before God and his people and administer those vows. And I tell them, all I'm going to do is make sure that you're making a biblical promise and not expressing some sentimental feeling there is nothing wrong with with expressing a sentimental feeling. There's nothing wrong with putting in the order of service the declaration of present love. But the main purpose of a wedding day is to promise a lifelong love. So why do we or why, why should we vow a permanent love on our wedding day? Why do we or why should we vow till death do us part on our wedding day? There's at least two reasons why we vow to love at a wedding ceremony and don't just promise to stay together if we're in love at that ceremony. The first reason is God's purpose for marriage. The second reason is the inevitable pain in every marriage. If you look at your worship folder insert, I've put a sentence in there. I rarely do this. I usually don't like it when anyone does this because I I hate to constrain you on what you want to draw or write or doodle. But I put a sentence uh, in the worship folder and it's gonna serve as our outline this morning. I want us to think about these these three phrases while the whole time remembering that they're a sentence. Because of the creator's purpose for marriage, And in light of the inevitable pain in marriage, Christians vow a permanent love on their wedding day. Okay, so first, the creator's purpose for marriage. In Matthew 19, there's this, what you might call a conversation going on between Jesus and some Pharisees and his disciples. Uh, The Pharisees, if you're new to the Bible, were were religious, uh, we'll say religious leaders, some professionals, some not, and they were Jesus's primary enemy in the gospels. Uh, The disciples, on the other hand, were 12 of Jesus's closest followers and friends. And the conversation in our text is obviously about marriage and divorce. And basically, Jesus's primary enemy and his closest friends were looking for more grounds for a legitimate divorce in God's eyes than Jesus was offering. Throughout the text, the Pharisees kept wanting to focus on the reasons for getting divorced, and Jesus kept calling or trying to call them back to the biblical reason for getting married. Now, I realize that as soon as the passage was read this morning, some of your minds begin to churn and some of your hearts uh, begin to turn. And by that, I mean they begin to turn upside down and they begin to turn inside out. Uh, Many of you know Uh, that this is a widely debated topic in the church and your minds began to churn. Some of you have experienced the ravaging effects of divorce either personally or in your family. And when you heard this text read, your heart began to turn. I don't mean turn hard. I mean turn upside down and inside out. And so because of that, what I want to do is I want to take 10 minutes and I want to walk through the passage. I want to walk through the passage and explain the passage in hopes that both our hearts and our minds can, at the end of that time, really focus in on the parts of this passage that are most pertinent to our reflection this morning. I also want you to know that for some of you, I have you in mind uh, in the conclusion. I want you to stay with me. I want you to lean in. I have some things I wanna communicate, but we have to say a few other things first, okay? So if you would, get your worship folder insert out and let's kind of walk through this passage. In verse three, Matthew very clearly tells us that the Pharisees weren't looking to learn from Jesus when they asked him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife on any cause? They were testing Jesus. They were either seeing if Jesus knew what Moses wrote about uh, divorce in Deuteronomy 24, or more likely, they were hoping that Jesus would offer his interpretation on Deuteronomy 24 and thereby offend and ostracize a large portion of Israel. Uh, Listen carefully to this. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses writes about a man divorcing his wife. A wife who loses favor in his eyes because he has, quote, found some indecency in her and so in jesus's day there was this raging debate among rabbinical schools as to what moses meant when he said that a man quote found some indecency end quote in his wife the most you might say uh, conservative rabbinical school that is school of rabbis said that quote indecency meant adultery Uh, The tradition, this particular tradition, believed that not only could a man uh, divorce his wife, he had to divorce his wife if he caught her in sexual infidelity. A second rabbinical school taught that Moses meant far more than adultery when he used the word indecency in Deuteronomy 24. For example, this second tradition taught that if a woman was a bad cook or regularly ruined her husband's dinner, you're laughing, it's true. They taught that he could divorce her. Uh, the most you might say liberal and you're thinking, is there a more liberal position than the second? Indeed there is. The most liberal rabbinical school argued that a man could divorce his wife for the simple reason of finding another woman more quote, favorable, attractive, beautiful. Beautiful. And so remember, the Pharisees are testing Jesus. They're not looking to learn from Jesus. Uh, They're not even really caring which side Jesus is on. They just want him to clearly align himself with one of these groups so that the other two groups would stop following him. If you're appalled at the various teachings of the rabbinical schools uh, that a man had to divorce his wife for sexual immorality or that he could divorce his wife for being a bad cook, I want you to listen very closely. Jesus did not side with one of these three, nor did he find some clever way to agree with all three. He disagreed with every one of them. He distanced himself from each of them. He ended up offending all of them to the point of death. Uh, Look with me at verses 4 through 6. The Pharisees want to focus on divorce in Deuteronomy 24. Jesus wants to focus on marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. The Pharisees wanna discuss the reasons for leaving a marriage. Jesus wants to discuss the reasons for staying in a marriage. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Conclusion, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, to be clear, because of the fall, because of sin, because of the hardness of heart, there are biblical grounds for getting a divorce. Jesus mentions one such ground in verse nine. But even in a conversation on legitimate divorce in a broken world, Jesus wants to focus back on the purpose for marriage before everything broke and fell apart. And I I plan to dig into verses four and six a little bit in a moment to understand the purpose of marriage so that we can understand why we give a a vow to permanent love in marriage. But before we do, I wanna keep going and look at verses seven to nine. Again, Jesus in verses four to six is focusing on marriage before the fall and the Pharisees wanna take the focus back to divorce after the fall in verse seven. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If you read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 this afternoon, you're going to see that Moses does not command a man to divorce his wife. Moses presumes that divorce is happening, and he tells a man how to divorce his wife, and he tells a man that he can't remarry his ex-wife if she marries and divorces another in the meantime. And so the Pharisees take, and they misuse Deuteronomy 24 in saying that Moses, quote, commanded divorce. This is why Jesus very cleverly changes the word in verse eight and says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Some commentators would say it's best to read that Moses conceded that you were divorcing your wives. In Moses's day, men would divorce their wives by saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times in a row. Presumably so they didn't do it when they got angry, I guess but they they would often refuse to give their wives a a legal proof that they were divorced. And they did this out of spite because they wanted to put their wife in, pardon the pun, a, a, a no man's land legally. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses tells the man, give your wife a certificate of divorce so that she can prove that she's not married to you and presumably get married, have a roof over her head, establish a way to provide for her children and not be homeless. But again, at the end of verse eight, Jesus goes back to, cre- to creation. He takes the conversation back to creation. He said, so I've entered in to your argument, but from the beginning, it was not so. In verse nine, Jesus finally answers their question from verse three. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery now notice that Jesus doesn't say that the divorce is legitimate if you find a more favorable woman or if your woman burned your toast and notice that he doesn't say that you have to divorce your wife over sexual immorality but think why didn't Jesus just give them verse 9 after verse 3 what are the grounds sexual immorality let's go home why? Because even when discussing the biblical grounds for divorce, Jesus wants to focus first and foremost on the very purpose of marriage. What is the purpose of marriage? And in understanding the purpose of marriage, why do we give one another a permanent love on our wedding day? Look back up to verses four through six. Basically, in verses four through six, Jesus says this because God invented marriage for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. He superglues a man and woman together on their wedding day. Jesus says, this is why men shouldn't separate what God has joined together. Because God invented marriage for the cause of advancing his kingdom, he superglues a man and a woman together on their wedding day. And so in a flippant divorce, in a divorce without grounds, it is always detrimental to God's kingdom. And it is always incredibly painful, more painful than one would expect when the man and the woman are ripped apart. If you were here last week, you know that we spent a lot of time on Genesis chapter two. We are studying the details of the creation of Adam and Eve. Genesis two is the passage Jesus alludes to here in verses four through six. And it's the passage he directly quotes in verse five. He quotes Genesis two twenty four. If you are here, you know uh, from Genesis chapter 2 that God created Eve, the first wife, because Adam had been given chores by God for advancing God's kingdom that Adam could not accomplish or execute on his own. The Bible teaches that marriage is God's invention. It's God's invention to solve the problem of ineffectiveness in advancing his kingdom. It's God's invention to solve the problem of a man who is unable to accomplish the particular assignments he's given uh, that's been given to him by God. And so we pointed this out last week in verse 6 of our text. When talking about creation, Jesus literally says, What therefore God has yoked together, let not the man separate. And so a yoke, of course, is a a wooden beam, a wooden apparatus that a farmer uses to connect two beasts of burden, that those two beasts of burden might get more work done together than they would have apart. And Jesus is at least saying this, an unacceptable divorce in God's eyes separates an inadequate man from the strong ally he needed to accomplish the chores God gave him in his calling. In addition to this, Jesus is saying, Because marriage is an institution implemented by God for the increased productivity of the man and woman in his kingdom, because of that, God superglues the husband and the wife together on their wedding day. In verse five, our English translation says that a man should leave his parents and quote, hold fast to his wife. While that is biblically true and while that is really, really good advice, it's not actually what Jesus says here. In the Greek, the verb is to glue And the verb is passive. In other words, Jesus says on a wedding day, a man should leave his parents and he is glued to his wife. It's clear in verse 6 that God is the one holding the super glue. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And so while Jesus clearly knows that there are legitimate grounds for divorce, he says, first and foremost, don't rip, don't shred, don't slice in two, don't separate. What God has joined together for his purposes and for his glory. You see, there's a mystery in marriage that reflects the mystery of the Trinity. A husband and a wife are, look in our passage, they are first two individuals yoked together. They are second, two individuals glued together. They are third, the two become one flesh, one person, verse five. And so like the Trinity where God is three in one, in marriage, the two are two, the two are glued together and the two are one. And when we say we have to get a divorce where God says you can reconcile, And when we say we can get a divorce for comfort or happiness or pleasure, this illustration is inadequate, but it's the best I could think of. Jesus is saying, you're trying to rip apart conjoined twins. It's really, really going to hurt. It is going to cause a mess. And it is going to keep you from accomplishing the chores I gave you when I put you together. It is not the same as ripping up a piece of paper. It is not the same as writing out a new piece of paper. In Malachi 2, we're told that God Almighty fixes two people together on their wedding day. And so first, we vow, or we should learn to vow, a permanent love on our wedding day. Because we realize that in that day, God is gluing us together for his glory, and our vows should be in keeping with the magnitude and the mystery of that reality. I wanna transition to our next point by asking this. What's one assumption shared by all three parties in our text? What do Jesus, the Pharisees and the disciples all have in common? That's the beginning of a bad joke right there. Jesus, the Pharisees and the disciples walk into a bar. What do they have in common? Think about it. They're all aware of the frequent hardship in and the inevitable pain in every marriage. They are aware of the frequent hardship in and the inevitable pain in every marriage. Think about it. Why was there even a debate on grounds for divorce in Jesus' day? If marriage was always a dream come true, why would the Pharisees keep pressing for an answer on when God permits a divorce? Because marriage is glorious, but often hard and frequently painful, they kept pressing for what's allowable. Uh, Look at the disciples' comment to Jesus in verse 10. Jesus has just said in verse 9 that sexual immorality is the only just ground for a man divorcing his wife. And the disciples say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry The Greek could also read this way, it is not better or it is not good to marry. They're flabbergasted. They're driven to hyperbole. Jesus just said you can only divorce your wife if she cheats on you. Why are they blown away by that? Why would they say it's better to not marry? Because marriage is inevitably painful. Marriage is at times very, very hard, even when marital unfaithfulness is not involved. So that's the Pharisees and the disciples, but look who else is presuming that marriage is really hard. Jesus. What does he not say in verse 12? Oh, you guys, you're overreacting. Marriage isn't that bad. It may not be as amazing as you hope, but it's certainly better than not marrying. And Jesus, I think, to their absolute shock, agrees with them. And he essentially says this. This is the New Living Ted translation. I know unikizing, by the way, unikizing is not a verb. I know unikizing yourself is painful. But if you can handle it, it may not be as painful as marriage. Look at verses 11 and 12. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying. I presume that he means this saying, the part where they said, it's not better to marry. It points back, not forward. He said, not everybody can receive that, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, presumably to serve in the royal court. Uh, There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. I mean, Jesus is saying, not everyone can do this. Only those who God calls and who God graces, only they can do this. But if you can handle the life of a sexual eunuch, do it. Why? Not in total, but at least in part, marriage can be really hard and it is inevitably painful. And Jesus is saying, yes, disciples, sometimes it's better not to marry. Take that and bash it against the church's idol of marriage. Jesus is like, yep, it's true. One of my toughest responsibilities in premarital training is to convince a young couple, quote, in love, that in marriage we vow, quote, to love, even during those times when we think, with the disciples, it's better to not. One of my toughest jobs is to help a young couple realize that they need to vow a permanent love on their wedding day because at some point in the future, they too will join every other couple I know who at some point after their wedding day wished they weren't married or at least wondered if it would have been better to not marry. Man, love, being in love blinds us to the pain of people around us to the statistics in the church, to what the Bible clearly teaches. Whenever you say something as outlandish as I just did, you either have to quote Jesus or Tim Keller. So (laughs) I'm gonna quote Tim. Tim and Kathy Keller have written this great book on marriage called The Meaning of Marriage. I definitely recommend it. On the back cover, there's a quote from the first chapter where Keller writes this, I'm tired of listening to sentimental talks on marriage. Marriage is glorious but hard. No marriage I know more than a few weeks old could be described as a fairy tale come true. I think it's important for us to think about why. Why is marriage inevitably painful? Not every marriage is always painful, but every marriage is inevitably painful. And some marriages are always painful. But why? I really want my single friends to think about this because I don't want you to automatically think that life will be less painful if you get married. I want my engaged friends to consider this because I don't want you to be flabbergasted when it gets painful. I want my married friends to think about this so that we can have some biblical perspective on the difference between our previous dream and our current reality. While you can say more than this, let's at least say this. Just read Genesis 3 this afternoon. Read Genesis chapter three, and you'll see at least these four reasons for for why marriage is inevitably painful. At marriage, kingdoms collide. When married, Satan attacks. In marriage, there's shame. Under marriage, there's a curse. And we think it's gonna be like Hollywood. I mean, think about it. First, at marriage, kingdoms collide. In our sin, each of us lives our life for ourselves. We live for our kingdom, our agenda, our fame, and our glory. As our old self, we do all we can to, be, to become the center of the universe, having everyone else and everything else revolve around us. And when we get married, the selfish part of us fights against, actually fights against the advancement of our spouse, or at least their advancement at our expense, Because after all, there can't be two centers to the universe. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three choose to not live for God's kingdom. They choose to not live according to his guidance. They choose to live for themselves and their own advancement and they rebel. And ever since then, in every marriage, God has glued together two people who to some degree want to use the other for their own good in their rebellion against God. If you don't think that's true, ask the the people who have been married more than a year. Kingdoms collide. Not only that, when married, Satan attacks. Now by this, I don't mean that Satan doesn't attack single people. And I also don't mean that Satan uh, attacks every couple. I just want to say that at the end of Genesis 2, everything is very good. Adam and Eve were naked. They were unashamed. They were about the business of advancing God's kingdom in a wide variety of ways. How does chapter 3 start? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. I mean, isn't it amazing that Satan doesn't attack until Eve is created? Why? Why? because Adam couldn't get all his chores done prior to marriage. But once all the pieces were in place for this sustained growth of multiplying God's kingdom, he attacks. You realize Satan, he is finite, right? He is limited. He is not like Jesus, omnipresent. Satan has a finite number of beings who have have aligned themselves with him. The kingdom of darkness can't attack all Christians equally. The kingdom of darkness strategically attacks those who are increasing in productivity. So if you're called to marriage by God, if you're called to marriage by God, and if you get momentum going in a selfless direction, expect diabolical attack. Isn't this fun? It's like a commercial for marriage. In marriage, kingdoms collide. When married, Satan attacks. In marriage, there's shame. As I said before, at the end of chapter 2, before they sin, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. But in verse 7 of chapter 3, after sinning, they know that they're naked and they cover themselves with fig leaves. They're experiencing shame. In marriage, God God intends for the man and the woman to be completely open, deeply vulnerable, humbly authentic. In marriage, God designed us to live with our guard down, to live with our heart and our mind and our bodies wide open. God intended for us to mentally, uh, emotionally, and sexually to be wide open to one another. But because of the fall, it is incredibly hard and it is very scary to live that way. We hide, we run, we pretend, we play grown up. So instead of sort of this bare-faced rejoicing that we were made for, there's this fig leaf posturing. But what's so hard about that is that we were still built for the bare-faced rejoicing. And there is this massive gap between what we were made for and what we're experiencing. And although not always conscious and not always easy to articulate, that is very hard. That is very confusing. That is maddening. That is painful and it produces painful behavior. Finally, under marriage, there's a divine curse. I chose the word under because in response to Adam and Eve, God doesn't curse them like he curses uh, the serpent. God curses Jesus instead of them. So I say under, not because God curses them, but God curses the ground under Adam and he curses the process of childbearing under Eve. If you read Genesis three, you're gonna see that that's the reality. Because of sin, because of the curse, life is hard. The woman no longer just pops these babies out and quickly pushes them out the door completely raised. God says that the pain of childbearing and child raising is multiplied. Chapter three, verse 16. Also, Adam in his work is fighting against thorns and thistles. Instead of whistling, he's sweating. Instead of succeeding, he's often failing. He tries to go to sleep at night and the weeds and the wild animals are awake. And this is what the man and the woman deal with day in and day out. And then they come together at night after painful and confusing and often disappointing days. And they try to serve one another and love one another and not use each other and not lash out at one another and not take their day out on one another. Marriage is glorious, but it is incredibly hard. I can't tell you how many uh, young married couples will come back to me and say, I had no idea how precious my time uh, in the evening was to me where I would decompress after a hard day. And now I'm around another person who had a hard day and kingdoms collide. So Christians do vow, they did vow or maybe they should have vowed a permanent love on their wedding day. Even though they know and precisely because they know that marriage is inevitably painful and yet they get married because of the creator's purpose for marriage. Marriage as an institution of God can be used powerfully to glorify God and to sanctify the couple and to serve the world. And that's why when when God calls a man and a woman into marriage, when he calls them into marriage, They vow a permanent love to one another, even though, and precisely because they know it's going to get very, very hard at times. So in conclusion, I want to focus in on the label I use in the third phrase. I want to make sure that we all understand what I mean when I use the label Christian. Sometimes, especially if you're new to the church or new to the Bible, you hear Christian and you think goody two-shoes. You think morally good. Uh, We think better than the world. But that is not how the Bible defines a Christian. Please listen very closely. I'm gonna speak clearly and I hope concisely. I am a man who has not been divorced even though I have been guilty of sexual immorality. I am a Christian because Jesus Christ lived righteously and perfectly because Jesus Christ never committed sexual immorality and Jesus Christ was crucified in naked shame for me and he gave me his righteousness. If you have provided the grounds for divorce or caused a biblical divorce, you are or you can be the beloved child of God, righteous in Jesus Christ, adored by the heavenly father, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. A person does not become a beloved Christian because they give a permanent love or vow a permanent love to someone else. They become a Christian and then vow a permanent love because God made them a Christian by extravagant grace. Next, some of my favorite people are divorced and some have biblically caused divorce. They're some of my favorite people because they were forced to bathe in the grace and mercy of God Almighty. And from that grace, they were driven to a desire for restitution and reconciliation. And they came back to life from that place far more loving, far more merciful, far more gracious, far more human than most of us. Next, if you've thus far given a faithful love to your spouse, and if you have never provided the grounds for divorce, or if you haven't stood on the grounds your spouse provided to you, listen very carefully to, me, carefully to me. You are not better than me. You are not better than me and my other adulterating friends in God's eyes if not pride for that good behavior, you too have sinned somewhere and God sees the two of us in desperate need of grace and mercy and he extends that to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You too are not a Christian because you've achieved. You too are a Christian or can be a Christian because Jesus achieved and then he offers that achievement to us in the gospel. Finally, how can any of us give, let alone vow, a permanent and sacrificial love to anyone, particularly a spouse, even in the midst of inevitable pain? How can we give a permanent love, even, the, even in those instances, I, I wanna say this and I just wanna leave it here. How can we give a permanent love, even if the most loving thing to do is to give a divorce, verse nine? How can we do that to someone who has caused us or who is causing us massive pain. We have to be Christians. Only Christians have the resources available to them that can empower them to love this way. Only Christians can look to Jesus. Only Christians can look to Jesus loving us on the cross while writhing in the pain we caused him in order to value and be empowered by that kind of love for other people hurting us. You can't give a permanent love to someone who is giving you pain any other way. Only Christians have the spirit of Jesus in them who can lead them to love others in the same manner and in the same way. Only Christians can vow a permanent love in the midst of inevitable pain for the purpose of their glorious creator and their gracious savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that we cannot outsin your grace and your work. I thank you that whether irreligious or religious, we can find forgiveness and grace and transformation for our pride. I thank you, Jesus, that you have loved us so lavishly in the gospel and have provided for us the paradigm and the power for loving others this way. I thank you, Jesus, that although hard, you call us, some of us, into marriage because that is your good call and your good will for our lives. I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to make sense of these things. We pray that you'd give us your Holy Spirit uh, to to dive into these things. I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit uh, to see you, Jesus, in all of your love for us and then to empower us to love others in the same way. Lord Jesus, only you know where each and every one of us uh, is now, only you know how this this text and this sermon and this topic has impacted us. Uh, Only you know where we all need to be shepherded and loved and cared for in this time. Uh, Would you do that by your Holy Spirit? Would you do that through your community? Uh, Would you prosper your people uh, in whatever way they need uh, after this sermon and this passage and this topic? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus.